and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I'm joined by my friends Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina, Tim, how's it going? Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that warm welcome, David. <laughs> I don't know. Thank I don't want. I don't want to make it a habit, but I thought I'd at least you know throw it out there one more time for you. You know, I've missed you guys, so I'm, I'm glad egos. to be welcomed back. <laughs> Well, I've lived for another week. That's what kind of feels like, like the death penalty reprieve. The governor's pardon has come through, and Angelina's here for another week. Once again, Angelina gets to be on Close Reads. We are here <laughs> for the final episode of discussion about E.M. Forrester's Howard Zen. We are going to answer listener questions. we got a lot of questions on Facebook, and we are going to power through as many as we can. In the past, We're going to try to answer these questions. <laughs> right. In the past, we've done it more like... Uh, where we would end up doing two questions or three questions and we would spend a lot of time on individual questions. But we're going to have a different strategy this time and we're going to try to get through as many of your questions as we can. We're kind of going to set a limit. I'm going to keep track of how long we're spending on individual questions and just see if we can get to as many of your questions as, um, as possible because we got a lot of them and we don't want to leave too many people hanging. Um, before we do that though... I'm going to speed us along by just answering yes or no to all the questions. All right. <laughs> okay. No explanation. <laughs> um, Serious, these questions have got me so nervous. You people are hot about this book, man. I went on that thread and seriously, like usually when we post a Q&A thread, there's four comments. It's like 200 right now. Like, no, no, make it stop. <laughs> Too much pressure. Hey, Tim, before we get going, though, I do need to ask you, you're, you closed out the run of your, of your play. How, overall, how'd it go? You happy yeah. with things? I was very happy with the performance. I was very happy as um, with the whole evening. It turned out really well because it wasn't just a theater project. It was like an immersive dinner theater project at a really kind of spectacular office building. So I was really, I mean, I think the people that attended really, they got their money's worth and they had a great time. Um. The, the thing that was so anxiety-inducing for me was selling tickets is just so unbelievably unpredictable. You're like you're appealing to this mass audience. Come see our play. Come enjoy an immersive dinner theater experience. And you're like, who is out there actually paying attention? And what is the trigger point that makes them say, I have to go do that? That part of the process was thoroughly unpleasant. Hmm. You have to. You need a carnival barker out there. It's like on the street. <laughs> Sa- sandwich boards. <laughs> right. School. You need more puppies. It's funny because there was. Yeah, we need more puppies. We need like fireworks. You yeah. had chocolate cake. Carnival I mean, what barker. did these people want? <laughs> what did they want? <laughs> you had me a chocolate cake. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of. All in all, David, it was it was a success. And I learned a ton about the whole, I mean, I, I have put on plenty of plays and cast and directed and all that. That part was um, enjoyable and I had a really great cast. It's just, I learned, I had to learn a lot about the whole like selling of tickets that I learned a lot. Hmm. Yeah. Well, congratulations. If I could, I would throw flowers at you. Send Thank you. Bouquets of flowers. Or, I don't know, whatever you're supposed to do. 
whatever yeah. weird, whatever weird theater things you're supposed to do. All right, before we jump into the I questions, I love how romantic David is. I throw flowers at you or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I'm just all about making sure Aww. that you, you know, whatever uh, whatever tropes are expected to be, you know, included. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure that. Uh, Insert expected praise here. That's David's <laughs> motto. Exactly. Correct. Um, that's pretty much how I get through this show. Uh, so <laughs> the other thing before we get into the questions, we, we need to talk, take care of some, some other business here because the close reads Cersei literary bracket is going, is launching on Friday, March 9th at 12 PM Eastern time. That is noon Eastern time. By the time you listen to this, that will already be going. That will already be going. So we're going to talk briefly about some of the choices here. And I'm going to get some Tim and Angelina opinions and we're going to have a mini throwdown before we answer some questions here. So Angelina, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to ask you some questions first here because Tim's mic is muted. So oh, no. it's just easy. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So we've got some matchups that are going to be pretty fun. I am here. present. I, I, I know. I just, you know, okay, here we go. One of the top seeds in this bracket. What we did is we, there's 32 heroines here. We divided them into um, 16 matchups, obviously. They're basically in four quadrants of eight teams. So here we, here's one of the first matchups for you for the first round. We're just going to do the first round this time because I don't, you know, we'll wait and see how it actually shakes out for the... For the Go first. ahead. Break my heart. I feel like okay. there's a heartbreak. Elizabeth coming, Bennett. Because I specifically Liz- asked you not to make certain pairings in the first round. I feel like it was almost a guarantee that you did. But go I ahead. Actually, I'm going to be honest. I actually completely forgot about that. And so I... <laughs> Don't know. If I did, it was an accident. It was not on purpose. Okay, okay here we okay. go. Okay. All right. Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice versus Becky Sharp from Vanity Fair. Okay, well, that one's easy. Elizabeth Bennett. Okay, I thought so. All right. Kate from Taming of the Shrew or Imogen from Cymbeline? Oh, Kate. Okay. Lucy Pevensey or um, Dorothea uh, from Middlemarch? I wish I could see your face right now. I wish I could see your face. I know. I feel like Lucy's going to win in a landslide, but come on. She's a girl. Dorothea's a woman. We got to go with her. (laughs) Um, Sonia from Crime and Punishment or Joe March from Little Women? Oh. Well, since I just confessed to you that I read Crime and Punishment 19 and actually cannot remember anything about the character Sonia. <laughs> okay. So I take it. Oh, yeah. So we were just, yeah. Well, well, I'm not crazy about little women, but I do remember as a, it seemed like you were just, I feel I'm playing into the stereotype. You just, before we pressed record said you thought women were going to vote based on nostalgia of what they read in their childhood. And I got all upset about that, but yeah. watch me do it right now. But I'm going to do did, it. I wasn't <laughs> saying this is because women are emotional. I was saying it's just one of those things that it's a it's a bracket of women's character female characters and thus that means that there's gonna be more women who are gonna be nostalgic about them from their childhoods like the, the character all right so i'm gonna love. do the thing i men, just men would do the I'm same thing would they man, okay with right, male so characters i men, related men. strongly to D- joe march as a, as a kid so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna pick her i mean Catherine hepburn as joe march do we all remember that that was amazing I was thinking one on a rider. Okay. Um, so Anna Karenina or so this next matchup is hilarious because this is a total shout out to Matt Bianco. Matt Bianco fought for one of these two characters (laughs) to be included in this bracket. Like he was ready to string me up if we didn't include this character. Anna Karenina. He appealed to to the internet to back Uh, him up. I know. know. It's it's hilarious. Okay. So Anna Karenina or Charlotte from Charlotte's web. 
both for nostalgia and literary merit and go with Anna Karenina. <laughs> okay. Um, Anne Elliot from Persuasion or Eleanor Dashwood from Sense and, Sense and Sensibility. Oh, I'm not crazy about either one of those. Wow. Yes, that's really? right. I just really? You're not an some... Eleanor Dashwood person. Uh, definitely not. So I thought someone accidentally called me Eleanor today and I got offended and she came back and said, no, I was calling your daughter Eleanor. And I said, well, thank God, because I was super offended. <laughs> you're, so you're okay with your daughter being insulted, but just not you. Well, in the context, oh, she was contrasting the two okay. of us. Okay. So then, so which of these two characters you dislike for some uh, nonsensical reason would you, are you choosing? I don't like either one of those. All right, I'll have to go with Eleanor Dashwood just because I think Sense and Sensibility is a better book than Persuasion. Persuasion is my least favorite of the Austin novels. Okay, all right. Um, Scout Finch. Which I know I, I took some, the last time I said that publicly, I took some, some heat on, on the Facebook page because apparently people really like it. But uh, no, it, it hasn't strongly touched my heart. It's okay, Angelina, you can have opinions. Okay, um, Scout like Finch. Well, this one, you, this one will be tough because you haven't read... We should have started this later. Uh, Scout Finch or Maddie Ross. Maddie Ross is from True Grit, actually. So you won't even. Yes. Well, I haven't. I haven't read it, so I don't know. I might change my vote after I read True Grit. But Scout <laughs> Finch, deep, deep personal connection. So much so, we read To Kill a Mockingbird when I was in junior high, and um, everybody in my class thought that I was Scout Finch. And for my birthday that year, a boy in my class who was a friend of mine bought a mug and then hand painted the name Scout on it and gave it to me. For my birthday present so my vote's gonna be for scout finch so you're riding you're riding hard for scout for a while here i'll be riding hard for scout for a while yeah okay all right and then the final one on this side of the bracket before we turn over to tim is antigone versus antonia from my antonia oh wow Okay, so I haven't read my Antonia, but someone just like three days ago told me I needed to stop everything and read it because I would not be disappointed. And then like a month ago, your mom told me to read it, so <laughs> I'm torn. But I haven't read it. So I'm going to so go with Antigone. Antigone. Okay. All right, Sam, you there? I'm ready. Okay, we're going to turn to you here. We're going to go Sam back to- Sam is just going to vote for the opposite of everything I said. I know <laughs> he's going to vote for Sonia. I know Wait. he's going to vote for Sonia. Are now, we doing the same side of the bracket or a different side no, of the I, bracket? No, I want to do the same. I want to get some of your opinions and some of these matchups too. So I know people okay. are, we know people are just going to vote based on exactly what you guys say. Right? That's the, we obviously I think Tim is definitely in the Charlotte Webb corner. I, I, my, my gut <laughs> no. is going no, 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 no. no. favorite book of all time. No. I'm not against it. Okay. So Elizabeth Bennett or Becky Sharp? Tim. Elizabeth Bennett. Kate or Imogen? Kate. Lucy or Pevensey or Dorothea from Middlemarch? I only know Middlemarch, uh, so I'm going to say Dorothea. Well, Lucy Pevensey's from Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, that Lucy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dorothea. Uh, Sonia from Crime of Punishment or Joe March? Sonia. Okay. And you know what? That's actually, that's kind of a tough one. That's based on my affection for the book more than, I think Sonia is a lovely character, but I also just think she's like the foil to Raskolnikov more than just right. like a really fully fleshed out character. Yeah, we did. There's a, well, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. We debated long and hard about some of these and what exactly is a heroine, but okay, yeah. Anna Karenina or, or Charlotte? Anna Karenina. Okay. Oh my gosh. Uh, like all time. And I know. If you, yeah. You're going to go to the grave <laughs> with, you know, voting for her. Anne Elliott or Eleanor Dashwood? Eleanor Dashwood. Scout Fincher, Maddie Ross. 
Scout. That's a tough one also, but I say Scout. Scout's um, just terrific. Antigone or Antonia? Antigone. Antigone from, well, Antigone for me is going to go deep into the bracket. Mm, yeah. I mean, assuming that Antigone wins, <laughs> um, wins her first round matchup. Um, okay. Then let's, let's go over to Angelina again on the other side. You ready? Okay. Okay. I'm scared. Okay. <laughs> Jane Eyre or Cleopatra from <laughs> Anthony and Cleopatra. Oh, what? Cause you know, I specifically <laughs> requested Cleopatra. <laughs> First of all, was a I, big setup. I was driving and voice texting David about this discussion of literary heroines and my phone kept changing it to heroin, the drug. So that just tells you everything you need to know about this conversation. And I specifically said, let's throw Cleopatra in there because I want to see a powerful, tragic queen. So I'm going to go for Cleopatra. Boom. There you go. Jesse Brown is going to come for my throat because she loves Jane Eyre. But yeah, the I'm Jane Eyreites out there are going to be going to be. All Jane's over. a little on the dull side. She's all about demurely accepting her fate. Cleopatra's going to be like, "Ha, take <laughs> me down with are, you, boy." <laughs> they are kind of the exact opposite, aren't they? Okay, <laughs> they are. I, just, Emma, I gotta go with the curveball here. Okay, Emma Woodhouse or Portia from The Merchant of Venice. Oh, Portia. I see. I don't like any of those Jane Austen heroines. Emma needs a slap. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Beatrice. <laughs> that's an interesting point that as this bracket goes on, we should talk more about that. Beatrice from Dante or Hester Prim from the Scarlet Letter. I suppose Hester, because Beatrice is not really a fully developed woman. Yeah, that's 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 another point of conversation that we've had okay and beatrice from much you do about nothing or elnora comstock from the girl from the limberlost or a girl the limberlost oh well beatrice of much you do about nothing is one of my all-time favorite yeah heroines, okay so okay yeah. uh penelope or margaret schlegel Pen- penelope from the odyssey margaret i love you but you know i gotta go with pelinope I mean, that's a tough first round matchup. Those are two Titans. Man, I know. Hey, there's a lot of uh it's tough. Okay. Uh okay, this is my favorite one of the entire first round. This was just me being mean. I got I'm just gonna be honest. All right, Anna Shirley from the Emma Green Gable series or Laura Ingalls from the Laura Ingalls from the Little House in the Prairie series. For real? Two books I have never read. Or have any desire to read, which I know are good favorites, and everyone want to kill me I for mean, saying I that. I didn't really think that it was gonna be your, uh, <laughs> your, your okay. favorite matchup. I'm gonna, gonna okay, so I'm gonna vote for Laura Ingalls based on this rock solid reasoning. <laughs> My oldest daughter, when she was six years old, obsessively read all of them, was so moved by these books that she started to refuse to use electricity and wanted to set up a tent to live in in the backyard. Hold, and she started telling every. Hey, Matt Bianco. <laughs> Come here. Okay, continue. Continue. <laughs> she started Not- telling all her friends that she was going to refuse electricity and all modern technology when she grew up and they were saying but how will you communicate with me and she was six years old and she just sassily said i'll write you a letter what's wrong with you <laughs> so she also that year gave us all pennies in our christmas stockings <laughs> she she was hardcore into it okay so based on that based on my love for my daughter i'm gonna go laura ingles okay all right here's here's one for you the wife of bath or Hermione Granger. 
Okay, so you also know I wanted the wife of Vath thrown in there. So I'm going to go with the red stockinged lady herself, Allison. Okay. okay, and then finally, Fanny Price from Mansfield Park or Hannah Coulter. Oh, come on. Fanny Price is my second favorite Austin heroine. You could have... Oh, man. That one's tough. All right, Wendell, represent Hannah Coulter. Okay. All right, so uh, Matt Bianco is just walking through, and I felt like this is the the uh, opportune time to make sure that he can defend the inclusion <laughs> of, of a certain spider. Yeah, of course. <laughs> why, why would that even be a question? <laughs> Matt, Matt fought long and hard. She's an arachnid. <laughs> that was Graham's case, actually. I cannot believe you just said that, Tim. You of all people know better. An arachnid <laughs> is never just an arachnid. Just like, in, <laughs> just like in Flannery O'Connor, a Baptist is never just a Baptist. <laughs> a black hat is never just a black hat. <laughs> I think what we're seeing here is that Matt likes women who will entangle them with their webs. <laughs> <laughs> also with eight legs, but whatever. <laughs> who makes signs about bacon, but continue. <laughs> I mean, I feel like maybe she's just onto you, and that's she the only might, reason. Yeah, she might have hit the nail on the head with that one, actually. <laughs> but there, there was there was some minor conflict, some minor moments of conflict over this one. I would say in the office. This, no, this I really bracket. do want to hear your case. She's a great character. I'm I'm so like touched that you fought for Charlotte. What's your case? <laughs> I don't remember. You can't just put me on the spot like this. His mouth is just open. You can't just give me a microphone and as my hard-fought opinion, because that was yesterday. I, Matt, exactly. you are I the male version it. of me. You're the male version of me. Five minutes ago, I could have nailed this, but I've moved on. Um, Look, I, a squirrel. You're the female version of me, Angelina. This we get that straight. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I had to make my voice deeper when I said that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did notice that. Tim, you and I, maybe we should just step out for a while here. Well, who doesn't? Maybe we who should. doesn't want Charlotte in the bracket? Both of all of you? No, no, no. No, I supported you in the original Thank conversation. You. I supported. I supported Tim, the inclusion of Charlotte. Where do, where do you fall on the, on the arachnid inclusion in this debate? All kidding aside, Charlotte absolutely belongs in the bracket. Thank okay, you. all right. The, it, sounds the like, it sounds like May doesn't need to make a defense. The topic of authority. But you, but you know, David totally through. ambushed you, Matt. I mean, he put her up against yeah. Anna Karenina. I, right. Well, well I, mean, I think she could have put her up against. Listen, let me just tell you: if he had put Charlotte up against Anne Shirley, I would have voted for Charlotte. <laughs> yeah, just to be clear, that would have been even more of an ambush. <laughs> If he put if he put the rat from Charlotte's Web up against Angela, you would. <laughs> the the Dale Carnival rappers for a landslide. <laughs> well, um, Matt, what was? Do you remember what your toughest? One of the things we do when we make these is there's a lot of kind of experimentation that goes into it. So we have to try different matchups and see how people respond to them, and mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a kind of a science experiment in some ways it's kind of an interesting test so what was there is there a particular female character here that just that you had a hard time that ended up you not you ended up not putting them through but that kind of broke your heart to, to have them lose there were two Who? two i i wept over <laughs> um i penelope did not make it for me to the end and that was hard and then Antigone did not make it to the end. And those were 
I think both of them made it to that kind of the really close to the end. And then they both got bumped out by the same person. So it was, that was rough. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was, if I'd had hair, I would have been yanking it. Yeah. He was like, his head was in his hands. <laughs> whole office is mocking me, laughing at me. Yeah. <laughs> we should have filmed it. I love that I so saying. much. If I, see, I, my guess before the show started, my guess was that you were going to take Penelope for the win. So I was so, surprised. So David was mine. Mine was too. Yeah. Until, he, totally until the him. exercise actually forced him to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim, let's turn to you real quick. Matt, you can leave whenever you need to. You can hang out here. Oh, I want to hear Tim's breath. Okay, so Tim did, he did the first side already. So let's talk about the other side here. Tim, Jane Eyre, Cleopatra. Jane Eyre. Emma Woodhouse, Portia. I've got to ask waiting for you, Timothy. (laughs) I just, you know what? I don't, I, Cleopatra, I, I didn't read her the same way that you guys read her. I kind of, I mean, yeah, she dies, you know, by self-inflicted ass. But her, like, she's kind of... <laughs> I feel like you guys are not enough. know how to describe it. You ought to be. She's weak. Uh, interesting. Okay. She's weak. Well, that's another conversation. The character that Shakespeare wrote. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that, that, that's more of a conversation about the play. And if she goes far, we can talk about our... Our pros and cons of her. I don't think she'll be Jane Eyre. Okay. That's my, my prediction. Okay, Emma oh, Woodhouse. I don't think she will either. Emma Woodhouse or Portia from Merchant of Venice? Portia, all time. I, I thought that might be one that you like. Um, yeah, I love her. Angelina, you'll be glad to know that we replaced Juliet with Portia. Oh, good. Yeah, in good. my defense, Portia was not on the bracket when I did it. That's true. That, yeah, that's true. Oh. I realize the negative, there's just so many negative responses to Juliet, especially from women. Hmm. They were like, they just do not like that character. Um, Beatrice from Dante or Hester Prim from The Scarlet Letter? Hester Prim. Beatrice from Dante. No, no. Tim once described her to me as a statue, not a woman. So there you go. I, okay. Absolutely. I don't even like Dante, and I could never say that about Beatrice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Beatri- Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing or Elnora Comstock? Uh, Beatrice. Okay, Penelope, Penelope, as Angelina calls her, or Margaret Schlegel. Penelope. <laughs> uh, Penelope. Anne Shirley or Laura Ingalls? That's a coin flip. I'm going to say Laura Ingalls. Okay. Wife of Bath or Hermione Granger? Hermione Granger. Yeah. That was another adjustment. <laughs> and Fanny Price or Hannah Coulter? Uh, Fanny Price. Okay. Have you read Hannah Coulter? Tim? Nope. Oh, nope. okay. Okay. I forgive you then. Yeah. So this is going to be really interesting. That's the first round. Um, we went through it here in the office. We go through all of them, but that's kind of irrelevant because you don't know who's actually going to win. Um, but I would be curious to Angelina of all these characters, who do you predict is most likely to win this thing? Based on the voting patterns that we have perceived the great injustice <laughs> of the world, the, uh, <laughs> The sample size is the two people. The gerrymandering, the, the bribery, the corruption. I'm going to say Elizabeth Bennett will win by a landslide. But don't you like Elizabeth Bennett? I do, but I don't, I don't think she... I think Penelope is the all-time best heroine. Okay. Okay, so you think Penelope should win, but you think Elizabeth Bennett will win? Yes. That'll can, be... I'm not going to be crying if Elizabeth Bennett wins now. Okay, I mean... Well done. But if but... Anne Shirley wins, <laughs> there uh, will then be I might just... if Anne Shirley wins, it means <laughs> there that she's will be blood. I mean, come on, people. <laughs> she's she's actively campaigning now. Speaking of 
corruption. Tim, who do you think is going to, who do you see winning this? I think, I think Angelina's right because I think Elizabeth, well, no, I'm discretion is the better part of that. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll come, we'll let you be um, less discreet on future episodes when we've got more time. We'll probably okay. do a whole okay. episode uh, after the first round. I'm thinking kind of going through the rest of it. Um, Hey, David, I have a suggestion for subsequent brackets. What if you do um, bad girls and bad boys from literature and you put them on opposite sides of the bracket and then the culmination is whoever's left on the women's side, whoever's left on the men's side, get married. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to. Well, I um, think the more fitting in is that they kill each other. So, oh, I think it's so much more interesting if Lady Macbeth marries Don Juan. <laughs> right? I mean, that's... that's Okay. Talk As about of some right fireworks. Now, you are no longer in charge of my online dating profile. You are not <laughs> trustworthy at all. Well, Tim, I can tell you next... I'm building... The, the I'm, next, building, I'm looking for literary... Um, a literary event. I'm not looking for happiness. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, the next bracket we do is going to be heroes. And then after that, we'll have to get more creative. And um, someone mentioned yeah. sidekicks. Sidekicks could be interesting as well. Um, you have one for Batmans and one for Robins. Yeah, exactly. But then, oh, like, yeah. Then it's all the sidekicks literary. Sidekicks is a great idea. Samwise Gamgee. Samwise Gamgee wins that. I'm pretty yep, sure. Right. Oh, but it'd be hard to top that. Okay. All right, Matt, get out of here. I'm we're we're going to talk about Howard's end now. Oh, gross. Bye, I mean, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Let's 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 answer some questions here. Um, all right, I got to move this thing out of the way here on Facebook. All right, Angelina posted the thread on. Uh, and by the way, if you hear noises behind me, we've got a a pallet being loaded, so I'm recording in the midst of a very busy time. So just you know, pardon the uh, pardon the interruption. So here we go. Here's the first question. This got discussed on another thread. This is from Krista Sanders, Krista Bonner Sanders, according to her. Facebook profile. We've discussed this on another thread, she says, but what did Tibby contribute to the story? Tim, I'm going to give that to you first. I think he is sort of the uh, the negative... How do I say this? He's the landed gentry who doesn't want to pursue kind of like the new money life of Mr. Wilcox. Um, but he also seems like he's kind of uncomfortable inheriting the responsibilities of old money. And I think he's kind of like, as far as what does he do amongst the other characters? I don't think he does very much. I think we could cut him out of the book and I don't think we would miss him that much, but what does he do in the kind of like big sociological scheme that our author is conveying i think he represents that kind of man that's caught in the middle Hmm. angelina caught in the middle by his own indecision angelina you have two minutes okay i think he's a precursor to birdie worcester and i think that the world has changed and has left tibby out yeah he doesn't know and i also think uh pointing to how his his role is no longer relevant every time helen or margaret get into trouble people run to tibby like he can fix it which is a joke he can't and doesn't want to be bothered and the women have to fix it themselves yeah he doesn't care he doesn't he's not interested in participating 
He just doesn't want to be, you know, disturbed or ruffled. Angelina, do you agree that the book could have done without him? Or does he offer some kind of... Like I think he fits thematically the idea of that world is passing away. The world has changed. Yeah. Okay. You, I mean, there was a time when the Tibbies of the world were the leaders, the landed gentry, the the aristocracy, the gentleman who doesn't work, the Oxford yeah, by educated. Yeah, and and Tibby is so his impotency so clearly makes the statement that you can't look to the babies of the world for leadership anymore. And that's kind of what Margaret's saying. We might all despise the Wilcoxes, but they keep the world going. Tibby mm. does not keep anything going. <laughs> um, so okay. I think we need him as a foil. Okay. I think it sounded like Tim, you were kind of bouncing around the edge of that word foil there. Like it felt like you wanted to say it, but it wasn't exactly what you were thinking. I started to say it, but I didn't know that that was, I think of him as sort of in, in Dostoevsky's books, he'll have a double of a character. Like we mentioned, I mentioned Raskolnikov a while ago and Svidrigailov is the double of um, Raskolnikov. He's like 20 years down the road. This is what Raskolnikov is going to look like. He's going to look like Svidrigailov. And I kind of, well, that's never mind. But like I just undermined my point. I realized in the middle of saying it, I was like, "That's not what you think he is. He's not a double. He's. I just think he's a, he's a representative of a person, just like Angelina said. I completely agree. He's representative of a certain person in dying British aristocracy. Uh, but I don't think he has a real role amongst the other characters. I think we could take him out and he'd be fine. We'd be just fine. But I also think that's kind of the point that he doesn't have a role anymore, right? He's just... That's a great point, yeah. Appendage. Hmm. Yeah. He's like a... And I he, love that the characters like a, keep like a going pinky through the... They, they keep going through <laughs> the formality of, well, of course, we need to know Pib, Tibby's opinion on this as, as the man of the house. And he's over there, like, sucking his fingers and having dessert and, you know... <laughs> Studying Chinese. I know. He's just... He could, could not be more irrelevant, and yet everybody thinks we need to appeal to him as the man yeah. of the family. Hmm. Okay, next question. Carla Montoya wants to know why I'm making everyone read so many books with names of places in their titles. And out of the three we have read, <laughs> what do you say, David? Order of the one you like the best to the one you like the least. Um, <clears throat> so, <laughs> I uh, have very weird people who work here at this office. Um, they're all they're like standing outside the window, just staring at it for no apparent reason. Uh, so, <laughs> I would say that um, I would say that I am not making anybody read anything. It is your choice whether you want to read read these books with us. Way to punt um, on that question. Secondly, uh, it's 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 completely a coincidence, except that I knew that there were themes in this book that tied to th- some of the similar themes that we've talked about in Brideshead, um, Gilead. Uh, even Jaber Crow, and in fact, uh, even um, the uh, the Murder Must Advertise book. There's there's a consistency of themes that I thought that this book uh, could could contribute to that conversation, and it so it happens to be yeah. titled the name of a place, and I think that that is says more about um, the kind of book speaking to those kind of themes uh, than it does about me actually having any real like scheme to always read books about places. Um, but then she Good asks answer. out of the three we have read, can we rate them in order of the ones we liked the best 
to the ones we like the least. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to guess which ones you guys liked in which order, and you can tell me whether I'm right or I'm wrong. Ooh. Okay, Tim, I predict your order was first you liked Brideshead Revisited of those three. Then you liked Howard's End. Then you liked Gilead. Oh, yo, 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 yo. Yeah, I think that's right. And of the three, I think that's true of Angelina too. No, I would put Howard's End on top. Okay. All right. Howard's End, then Brideshead. That's, that's interesting. Okay. Okay. Next question from Emily Williams Rabel. Where in the world did Jackie go? Exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. I don't know why it's nagging at me that her thread was left loose. A couple of emojis. Angelina comments that it nagged her too. It did. I don't and like got, those loose in. There's a few other people who responded um, similarly. Um, actually, there's like but a, there's I, a whole I thought thread about it for a long time. Right, like so, it's either a, a flaw that he le- left this thread hanging, mm-hmm. or or it's not. He's doing so. So I thought about it for a long time, and here's my here's my latest theory. It's a flaw. That's the point. No, that's the point. <laughs> not very good. That she gets she gets Jackie this, just keeps she's like, thrown in the trash again. So Henry puts her on a bad path. Then Charles steps in and kills her husband. Now she's just completely an afterthought. She's completely ruined. The Will Coxes have completely ruined her. And she's just, yeah, she's just an afterthought. Hmm. She's confined to the dustbin of history. Yeah. She's just tossed aside. Hmm. Do you ever feel like, which is very bothersome. Yeah. I did think about that too. Like what they were already living on the charity of Leonard's family. I'm sure they're not going to be providing for his widow. Hmm. Well, does she, so I was thinking about that. Does she disappear after he dies or does she disappear after he has his thing with Helen? No, they're still together. They're homeless and, and he's writing letters for the charity of his family and he's just pestering them and they give them a little bit of money. So okay. she was still there. Okay. In fact, I think she was sleeping in the other room that night when he can't sleep and then he gets on the train. Wasn't that right? I don't think he jilts her. Okay. Okay. I, just, I, okay. Not that I recall. I don't yeah, think yeah, he no, abandoned I think, her. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, okay. Next question from Kirsten Brock Harpain. This is a, I probably just ruined that. Uh, what was the deal with the broken picture frames? Either of you want to tackle that one? Say it. Or yeah, say, I don't know. Say it in the best Seinfeld voice you can. I don't know either. All right. Well, moving on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I'd say that's reading for whoever caught all that. Um, same part, same questioner says, who was the narrator? What was his purpose? Why did he need to tell us the story? And why did he leave so much out? Uh, Dara Weaver also mentioned that uh, he even changed genders a couple of times. Um, and someone else mentioned some similar um, surprise that the narrator was a female perspective at times. So um, is this, she, and she says, Rachel says, is this unidentified narrator a typical feature of this era of novels? Angelina, is an unidentified narrator a typical feature of this era of novels? Would you say? I, I'm trying to think of if that's something typical of it. 
Oh, gosh, that's so hard to say. I mean, it's definitely moving toward a more omniscient narrator. Is that what we're trying to say? Well, so the question is, who was the narrator? Um, do, do you think, I think one of the things that's confusing about this book at times, and purposefully so it seems, is that Forrester is, there's the narrator, and the narrator is so tight on what's going on. Like he's so close in. And he's so inside people's heads. And yet sometimes he's switching, it seems, to the inside of a character's head. And so it's hard to tell at times, is there a narrator that is outside of the book that just knows a lot, so to speak? Or is the narrator, is the narration from the perspective of the characters and thus not really a narrator at all? Like the way he jumps around is a little bit off on that. And I think Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. that makes it confusing and um, disorienting. Do you think that that is... I mean, is that a, I'll just say it this way. Is that a flaw or is that um, purposeful? I mean, even if it's purposeful, it could be a flaw. Tim, what do you think about that? I mean, we've talked about the narrator quite a bit, but I'm, let's see if we yeah. can put, kind, of, kind of put a bow on that, that part of the conversation as we move away from this book. I think it's a flaw. And I liked the narrator. I liked the kind of wit and pizzazz that the he, she narrator brought to the book. If there was a if there was a reason, I think if we could detect a reason why the narrator is in this kind of really ambiguous gender role, and it played a oh gosh, I mean I could like conjure a reason why the gender switches. You know, it's maybe you could say it's moving from kind of a masculine point of view to a feminine point of view. Or something like that. I can imagine that as an adequate explanation about why. It's just so. Um, it's just so unclear that I'm inclined to read it as a flaw. Hmm. Angelina, do you? Where do you? I don't know. I, I guess I kind of feel like he's trying to figure out the omniscient narrator and his playing around with it and, and maybe doesn't always have the right control of it. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't bothered by the narrator as much as a lot of people. I was okay with him bouncing around in people's heads and not really knowing who was thinking what I, I, w- I wasn't really bothered by. It, so I didn't think a, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what's his deal and why is he doing that? I just, I just went with it. I liked it. It's um. I mean, you, it is different. I agree. It's almost like a stream of consciousness, omniscient narrator, where he's just in and out of everybody's heads and his head and their head. And yeah, I did. It did remind me of Faulkner, like the sound of the fury. Yeah. Where you not, yeah, at times you're not entirely sure which character or there's this kind of abrupt switch into a different character's head or, you know, subconscious even at times. Um, these people are asking questions that there are not always answers to. So maybe we should just wrap this episode up and just say, we don't know enough to do. Maybe (laughs) I think, I think that we are imposters doing this show. And for some reason people are listening and we've been talking. (laughs) But see, I think David, the the comparison to Faulkner is a really good one because when, when Faulkner does that, although it can be confusing, it, it, it seems very purposeful. It's part of the overall strategy of the book. And it fits snugly within that strategy. I just didn't see this fitting snugly into the overall strategy of the book. That's why I'm inclined to say, yeah, I 
they just needed one more edit. Well, I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with what Tim is feeling. I mean, Faulkner comes a lot later. And so I'm thinking much more in terms of like the development of point of view, mm-hmm. which we can we can forget how awkward point of view was. I mean, all these epistolary novels, they did not know how to have a narrator. They had right. to learn that. And even right. when they moved to omniscient, it's initially limited omniscient. And, and lots of arterial intrusions and reader, here she was thinking this, and reader, let's consider this for a minute. I mean, they, they're all right. still figuring out how do you tell a story. And so I see Forster a little further along than Elliot and Dickens, but not quite where Faulkner is yet. But he's still, he's pushing it. Yeah, no, he's definitely pushing the bounds, getting, he's doing things creatively that were not commonplace at the time. You know, there's, yeah. there's a T.S. Eliot playing with, poetry vibe to what Forster's doing with the novel form. Right, right. It just, it takes, we're on the other side of it. We're so used to all this stream of consciousness, omniscient narrator. We don't even think about how difficult it was to figure out how to pull that off. Hmm. Okay. So if I um, complain about it as an error, it is within the overall scope. It's like the novel has been advanced through the, through this book. Right. And so I'm totally okay with you saying he doesn't quite pull it off and it's a little flawed and it's awkward in some places because I don't disagree with that, but also kind of just want to applaud and be like, well done. Yeah, right, right. Nice effort. Look at you. (laughs) Okay. Um, Kirsten, or however you say your name, Kirsten, uh, also asks several other questions and I'm going to ask this one for the sake of time. What would Howard's End look like in 25 years? What do you think? You have to get imaginative here, Tim. So as the playwright, you're casting a scene or you're putting together a scene at Howard's End 25 years later. What does it look like? We're talking about the, the location or the book? The, the, the location, the place, the house. What does it look like in 25 years? I assume she doesn't mean like in 20, years. From, from when the book ended, I'm guessing. Ah. 25 years oh, after the conclusion question. of the book. What does Howard then look like? I guess the question is, what do, what effect does Margaret have on the place? I guess it's kind of implicit in that question. Yeah, right. Okay, let's start with the simple things. Mr. Wilcox has died. Margaret is still alive. Helen is still alive. I think that they are, in 25 years, the, the child has moved out of the house and has gone to where that's a really good question where would a child have gone to is it so it'd be, he's be a between, bastard child between the wars right 25 years from the end of this book would be between right or right on the cusp of world war ii so he probably yeah probably would have been a soldier he's, he's probably uh trouncing around europe somewhere between the wars um doing something adventurous right yeah. Well, that's actually good for him in terms of the social implications because uh-huh. the book at the end is kind of open-ended about where where this child is going to fit. Like so so Henry makes him the heir of Howard's Inn, which that so bastards don't have legal standing for like inheritance and things like that. So that's that's huge that he ends up becoming the inheritor of that. Mm. Uh, and there's lots of questions about whether or not he could be accepted into society as it stands. But after the war, things are going to change drastically. Right. Um, there's going to be definitely a shift. So 
there's there's hope for him. Helen, Helen, it's oh, I can't even imagine a scenario where she gets remarried or married. She's she's ruined. I think there was some question on the Facebook page about exactly what that I mean when I say she's ruined. Um, I'm, I mean socially ruined. She right. is, she cannot be married at this point. Um, so for her to choose her child is to choose that she will never be married. And there's lots of books, of course, where people pass themselves off as a widow. And we don't know how much things would be publicly known about the child's father. He certainly could say, my father's dead. And that's true. But with the trial and there being a scandal, I mean, the kids, there's a lot of scandal. My uncle killed my dad, my illegitimate father. Like, you know, it's a lot of scandal around this kid. But I think we're supposed to look at, at it as a happy ending for him at the end. Hmm. Happier, at least, than being outcast. Yeah. Hotels or somewhere. Okay, next question. We're moving right along here. Angelina, what's the significance of Mrs. I like that question. Miss Avery. Was she placed in the story? Are you asking me? Yeah, to shed a a different light than the narrators and create questions, maybe to spice things up and keep the story moving, or maybe another portrayal of an independent woman? Oh, I think she's definitely a mystical kind of character who seems to know better than anybody else what the real reality is. She she recognizes before anywhere else that Howard's Inn is Margaret's home, and that's why she unpacks it, and that's why she sets up a nursery before there's any talk of a baby. She's she's like a mystical force of the universe working behind the scenes. I mean, she's almost like Providence, because when 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 the when the crisis comes. The house is the promised land has already been prepared for when they step out of the wilderness, it, and she's been preparing it the whole time. Hmm. I like the idea that she's in some ways an extension. I think Dara mentioned this. Um, feels like an extension of Mrs. Wilcox. Oh, I yeah. agree with that too, because um, she's also working behind the scenes to make Mrs. Wilcox's death wish come true. Right. Right. So she's Mrs. Wilcox. She. Really, this should be a ghost story is what we're saying. Um, yeah. I do think that Mrs. Wilcox's presence is, is over the story. Let's see here. Here's another question from Esther. Um, she says, I was wondering if you think Helen was ever really connecting her inner and outer lives before Margaret left her for Henry and before the Leonard incident. I know she and Margaret connected on an inner life level, and I know she is connected at the end. The baby seems to root her, and then Margaret and the house seal the deal. But before that, I can't decide. Was she just connecting the inner life and the outer life in a different way than Margaret? It seems as though everyone around Margaret is some variety of unconnectedness. Is this an accurate assessment? David, could you you read that again? Yeah. So Esther asks if Helen was ever connecting her inner and outer lives before Margaret left her for Henry. And before the Leonard incident. So she says that, that Helen and Margaret connected on an inner life level. And she says she knows that at the end of the book, Helen is connected. The inner life and the outer lives are connected. And the, ba- the baby seems to root her. And then the house and Margaret kind of sealed the deal. But she's wondering if before that, that's beginning to happen. I, I guess that's what she's saying. Was she just connecting the inner life and the outer life in a different way than the way Margaret did it? And it seems as though everyone around Margaret is some variety of unconnected unconnectedness is this an accurate assessment i i my thought is that she kind of connects with the um affair with leonard bast i mean it's a strange thing because like we're describing the connection as kind of a step toward maturity Mm -hmm. but i think that 
like kind of recognizing by having this brief affair with Leonard Best, I think she gets a notion of kind of what it would actually be like to be one of his kind, hmm. to be so, someone in his place. So Esther, in a um, second, uh, quite like a little bit further down on the on the thread here, she says that she thinks of connect the connection that Forster was driving at as the idea of having one foot in your inner life and one foot in the outer life and letting them influence and interact with each other. She says, yeah. I could totally be wrong, so I hope they pick up this question. Uh, do Angelina and Tim, do you agree with that? I'm struggling. I'm struggling to figure out what I, what I think about it. I think that Margaret is fighting hard for us to see the value of the outer world. I don't, I would not call that connecting, nor do I think when she's upset with Henry for connecting that that's what she, if what she's talking about, I don't think that's what Forrester's talking about when he says only connect. I think that those okay. are all inner life things. Like I think that connecting means connecting all the threads of the inner reality, the larger reality. So then somebody asks, Kajirsten again, uh, she asks, what is connection? Then what is it that he's talking about there? Let's, let, it seems like we need yeah, to define so, that. Well, okay. So he admittedly, he doesn't define it. So certainly right. it's open to interpretation. But right. the way that I took it, and of course I would take it this way, is that he's talking about the connection in the mystical sense, being able to see how everything in the world is connected in terms of its greater reality, looking beyond the surface to see the greater reality. To, for Henry to be able to look at Helen and say, oh, that is essentially the same thing that I did, um, which I don't think is an inner world, outer world uh, dichotomy. It's just his refusal to, think, to, to see that two things that look different are really the same. Because he, all he was focusing on was the differences, but they were essentially the same. So for me, that's how I take always connect. But I agree that Margaret is arguing for the, um, the value of things that get dismissed when you focus on the inner world. I, I would never have said that she's trying to connect the inner and outer world. I would, I would have never said that. I think she's trying to see the value of both of them. But I, I would have not I would have not thought of it that way. So I think that Helen is already someone who connects. She connects everything. <laughs> maybe maybe too much. Um, but she's out of touch with the outer world. But I don't think that's a that's an issue of connection. I mean, there's a sense in which she's just as out of touch as Henry, right? And and they're kind of foils for each other. But I don't think the problem is that she's not connecting and he's not connecting. They have they have different sorts of problems. He's yeah. living which primarily you, in the which are you talking about now? Helen. Okay, just read. Yeah, I was just clarifying. Just clarifying. Sorry, Helen. Helen. Right. Helen and Henry are almost two poles, but but Margaret says specifically she's not trying to find the truth in between those two things. That both of those things are true by themselves, and you dip in and out of both of them. Which I suppose you could argue that that means connect both of them. That's not the way that I would read it. I, I agree that you have to dip in both of them. You have to see the value of both of them. But I would never think of that in terms of connecting them. Which I could be just quibbling over this, but. Tim, you're reading similar. Do you agree with that? Or, do, or are you more in line with what the commenter seems to have been saying? I don't, 
I think that the the thematic unity of the book, I do think is much more about recognizing the validity of both the inner and the outer world. So I, I don't have as much of a mystical reading as Angelina. And I think part of the part of the reason that I was so satisfied with the book is that um, there is kind of a reconciliation between this kind of internal drive that Helen has and the external obstacles of the book and of British society. I kind of read Forster as it's funny. I read Forster is, is not saying like, Hey, the solution is a balance or a solution is, you know, like some sort of yin yang, you know, synthesis of opposites or something like that. I don't, I'm not reading it that way, but I think he's, I read it as he's kind of not allowing us to either be Helen or be Mr. Wilcox, but we have to recognize that like both of those things are part of the real world. I agree with that. So does connection mean connecting the inner world and the outer world? Well, that's, that's where I'm not, I'm not ready to say that that's what connecting means. I am ready to say that that is what the book is saying. Yeah. Helen and Henry are both broken at the end of the book. Neither one of them is being held up as the model. Okay, so then that brings us to another question that Esther asks. Is Henry connected at the end? He seems more used up than aware of an inner life. I thought the way he appeared utterly exhausted and lifeless was a low note in the ending chord of the book. And Bonnie mentions that she thought when she read, this guy will be dead in six months, he seems feeble. And then Laura says, um, uh, he's updating, mentions that he's updating his will and forming his kids. All It like feels very end of life type situation. Yeah. So, is Henry connected at the end? Well, again, it depends what you mean by connecting. I think he is connecting because I think the whole point was that he had to be able to see his brokenness and Helen's brokenness is the same thing. And for me, the money line is when Helen says to Margaret, you and Henry understand each other. So there is a connection now between them. On the whole book, Margaret's been saying, I know he doesn't understand me. I know he doesn't understand me. And then then Helen says, no, he understands you. Y'all understand each other. But, you know, I think we see this in a lot of books that refuse to have tidy endings. You know, his, mm. his, his obstinance and his being fighting the connecting for so long, it does break him. So, I, you know, yeah. no, we don't have a nice tidy hat. Oh, well, now I see the error of my ways and it's happily ever after. No, he's mm. broken, but perhaps he's gotten something, something better out of it. I mean, Helen is acting like it's a happy ending and that Margaret and Henry are happy. But it's not like all all obstacles are gone. No more battles to fight. He he seems very uh, um, estranged from his children. Almost they. I mean, mm-hmm. they, the, Paul and Charles. They have not connected. <laughs> they haven't gone along with him. They're not happy to see the the house go to someone else. Right. So I I do think I think it's intended to be a happy ending. I do think it's a redemption story for Henry. We have to ask ourselves what the redemption means. I mean, to me, it's like, what does it gain a man to, you know, inherit the whole world and lose your soul? It's that kind of thing. He gains his soul and he loses everything else, but that's okay. That's good enough. It's better. Hmm. Well, even so our friend Rudy, he asks where there are two endings, a Flannery O'Connor ending and a Hollywood ending. 
Tim, what do you think of that? Meaning the little let, bast scene yeah. versus the okay. Yeah. Tim, I'll let you answer that. You're friends with Rudy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think it's a Flannery O'Connor type ending for Mr. Wilcox. I don't know. Would the Leonard Bast ho- qualify as a Hollywood ending? Oh, it's no, a I thought down- that was the Flannery O'Connor ending. Well, I don't know what the question's asking then. It's, Does Rudy he doesn't expand? No. So I, I assumed he was saying the Leonard ending was the Flannery O'Connor part. Oh, right. Like, like you know, in but I don't, I don't see... But I don't see the, that um, Leonard Bass, the kind of solution to his storyline is redemptive. It, it, I don't see dark grace in that. I just see darkness, just straight up darkness. Now, when his, what, what his part of the story causes in Charles and in Mr. Wilcox, I see that as like grace coming into the picture. But not for, I don't see it for Leonard Bass. I think Leonard Bass... I mean, it's a straight-up tragedy for me. Hmm. Well, okay. Let's so, bring about some redemption for Mr. Wilcox and for Charles and, and for Helen and for Margaret. Hmm. Well, let's keep going because this question is related to this. Angelina, was Leonard's heart disease defect or slash defect a deus ex machina situation? You know, I actually <laughs> thought that when I read it at first. I was like, what? This seems like a little. We need to get rid of this character. So here we go. Heart disease. But then the more that I thought about it, the more I was okay. Like, with the idea that his heart was in some way inadequate, faulty. Because I think, I think we do see the sort of metaphorical reading of that through the whole thing, that he's striving for something that he can't quite get right? It's something beyond him, something that's too much. And he does, he gets crushed by the books of all things. I mean, the thing that he's been holding on to as its lifeline, but we, but we said there was always something a little bit off. And some and people I might say if, that's a little bit on the nose by Forrester. Right. Well, yeah. And then, I mean, he gets crushed in between the, the Schlegels and the Wilcoxes in the middle of their fight, right? Which, I mean, the, the Wilcoxes and the Schlegels had been ruining him from the second they crossed paths. <laughs> so they, yeah. they finish him off. And, and he's kind of an afterthought, just like Jackie. But, uh, and so part of me was a little bit uneasy about what happened to poor Leonard, right? Um, but in terms of his character arc, he is repentant at the end. He goes there to, re- to make amends. So he, he does, he is accepting responsibility. Um, even though Helen herself takes the blame for what happened, he obviously still has guilt about it and wants to try to make right. Um, and then it's an interesting thing though, that it's his child that is the heir to Howard's end. Oh yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to put that all together in my mind. So I feel like it was tragic for Leonard, but there's some, there's some kind of redemption there because his child gets what charles didn't get it's not charles's children that are the heir it's leonard's child yeah which maybe has a metaphorical meaning you know that it's generational to to make your way into a certain society that leonard Mm -hmm. Leonard couldn't make it it's a it's a generational attempt which we Mm -hmm. can we can relate to that we that's i think i think we all feel about that with books and classical education and trying to get the the culture and all of the things that we, we have not exactly inherited, but we're trying to do it for our children, recognizing we're never going to be able to 
fully enter that world. We're trying to set yeah. things up for the next generation. So it's a good question because I initially thought, what the, what, come on, come on. How could you do that to Leonard? But then I was like, okay, I'm going to wrestle with this and see if I can't make some sense out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's keep going. Just, you know, I promise, I promise we're going to try to get to as many as we could. A few more. Um, let's see here. <laughs> Who is Howard? <laughs> and then Jesse, that was from Brandon. That was from Brandon. Uh, and then uh, Jesse Brown responds. Maybe it's about how words end. H O W. W O R D S and how words end. Cute word play. Yeah, my answer is yes. Next question. <laughs> um, someone else says, I want to know the answer to all the above questions. Okay. Um, okay. Can you give a moment? Uh, Bonnie asks a similar question to this that I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Can you give a moment that left you in shock for a few paragraphs? She mentions Mrs. Wilcox's death um, and finding out what Henry's affair as a couple. But there are lots of Helen's, pre- Helen's pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I was not expecting that. I, it didn't leave me in shock, but Margaret leaping from the car is a great one. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Um, let's see here. Okay, someone out there's another Jackie question. Were Leonard and Jackie married? Yes, yes. Um, Uh, let's see. Once they found out about the pregnancy, what was Margaret saving Helen from so desperately? The men would that the men would have fussed at her, sent her away, which is what Helen was planning on doing herself. What was the huge and terrible deception that Henry and Margaret pulled off catching Helen? If someone told me that my books were in their country house, I wouldn't be terribly surprised to see the owners of the house there. Margaret acted like she had lied and cheated and schemed in all directions to get Helen to go there. So I guess she's saying the first part is what was it that Margaret felt like she had to protect uh, Helen? They from, were so, about from to the... lock her up in the loony bin. <laughs> but were they, that's Margaret, because they thought she was crazy. And they she, thought she was they, crazy. But once right. they found out she was pregnant, they weren't going to do that. Weren't they just, she was just trying to keep her from leaving England. Well, okay. So initially the deception was let's lure her down here and then put her in the loony bin. That was the initial deception so that's why um, margaret felt and so- Mar- yes and so then margaret sees oh she's pregnant now i understand what's going on she's not crazy but i don't know that in that moment margaret didn't think they were still gonna put her away i suspect part of it I is think- an instinct too that kicks in to protect your family protect your sister and it talks about how she's right protecting womankind so to speak you know, it's very, right. the book I mean, is at the not very, very least, the men were about to take over and make all the decisions. We know that they were thinking, can we force her to get married? That was their, one of their thoughts. Um, but and Margaret saying, no I'm question. tired of millennia of men making decisions for us. Right. But there's no question that they intend to separate Helen and Margaret forever. Okay. Let's keep going here. Um, I know this is abrupt, but let's keep going. I like this. This is from Jesse. Henry cheated on his wife. Leonard cheated on his. Do we blame them equally? Tim. Uh, <laughs> well said. Angelina. We're, I'm going to do the same thing. We, yeah. I'm going to do the same thing I did last time. Within the confines of the book, no, we don't. Because we adore and have sympathy with mrs wilcox and we have a harder time doing that with um what is her name it's terrible 
like Helen. Falling for Helen. Oh, Jackie. No, no, Jackie. Um, so I think it's a little bit easier for us to have sympathy with Leonard than with Mr. Wilcox. But I mean, as far as the strict reading of the law, no, I mean, under the law, I mean, un under, they both had adulterous affairs. Forrester sets us up to have more sympathy with Leonard by giving us the episode and, and the send up to it and showing showing the kind of wife he had. And also, I think that I think that Helen takes the blame primarily. I, th I think part of the reason why we feel bad for Leonard is he just feels like a pawn in Helen's hand the whole time. And that, she even says that. So she Leonard? she basically takes. Yeah. So Helen basically takes advantage of Leonard in that situation and then just moves on and tries to pay him off. He feels sick about it and is just sick about it the whole time until he shows up over there and dies. Hmm. One thing, so Jeff I guess we can have, I, I have sympathy for him because I just think, man, the worst thing that ever happened to him was when he crossed paths with Helen Schlegel, you know? And, yeah. and, and also, I mean, he's not Henry. He feels terrible about it. He's trying yeah. to make amends. It's not just an episode that he can, Henry would have taken the money and just washed his hands of it. Hmm. Uh, so Jesse actually asks, how do we know Henry years before wasn't also seduced, which is, I mean, we can't know that, but that's an interesting, I have a hard time imagining Jackie outsmarting anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> me too. Okay. Here we go. If you had to be one of these characters, who would you be? Angelina, you're first. You have just no, you can't explain why. Just tell us. Fine, Margaret, but I don't get married. <laughs> Tim, <laughs> I said, you can't explain Tim. Tibby, Tim, Tibby. <laughs> Margaret. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see here. Miss Avery. Uh, there's Wilcox. a lot of, there's some questions in here about structure. Um, these are tough ones to touch on quickly. Um, yes, it has a structure. Next. <laughs> well, he's, we've talked about how he's playing with the form. So Leslie asked, is Forrester follow a traditional structure or is he playing with the form? We've talked about that a little bit. Um, he's definitely taking the novel into new places or he's, he's at least part of a movement that is moving, that's kind of creating a new tradition or taking the tradition to new places. That is definitely the yes. case. Um, yes. what the climax primarily, she asks, primarily in two ways, the, the narrative voice and, and the jumping ahead in the action, the loss of time in the book. I, I would say what's, those are the two ways. What's complicating everything is that he's kind of, um, of the same generation as the modernists. But he's is not a modernist book in that the modernists are very deliberately trying to kind of oh how do you describe it? Um, they're breaking the timeline. They're not like what Forster does. Is he jumps forward in the timeline and he ne purposefully neglects things. But a lot of the modernists are taking the timeline and they're cracking it up and putting it into different places. And, they're, and the modernists also have a tendency to kind of be um, narrative. The narrator tends to be neutral. He's not just a reporter, but he tends to be neutral. And Forster's narrator is not neutral. He's constantly commenting. Would you say, and again, so the modernists are not my period. I'm just going to speculate here, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. 
would you say that the modernists are deliberately fragmenting the narrative to try to make the statement that things are not connected in a meaningful way, but Forrester yeah. is trying to say it's connected in a meaningful way? Yeah, I think so. I think that's fair. And not all modernists are the same. I mean, if you if you include Gustave Flaubert mm-hmm. as a modernist, and you also include James Joyce as a modernist, I mean, they are such different types of writers. And Flaubert does not crack the timeline. It's very straightforward and realistic. But he has that kind of distant, very neutral narrator. Whereas James Joyce... He cracks the timeline in a hundred different places, but, you know, but his narrator's kind of a neutral. I mean, he's not just a reporter, but he's kind of neutral. So when you say neutral, you mean they are not casting judgment on characters and yeah, actions? exactly. Okay, whereas exactly. we hear this running commentary in this book. He's telling, he's telling us, like David's complaint was last week, he's telling us, you know. Mm-hmm. And in that, he's still much more of a Victorian writer where he's right. going to comment right, right. and cast moral judgment. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to keep going here because that's the purpose of this episode. Uh, let's see here. Oh, man, there's some good questions. Um, man. Um, All the questions were so Hannah good. Hannah says, I've so only cool. read and listened to the episode for chapters one through five, so I don't know if that's a question, but I'll take the comment. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, there's one that's interesting here, and I've got to find it. Okay. Right. I've got one while you're looking for it. Um, okay, go ahead. It, it, Melissa Wagner, my pet idea, I thought this is so great. My pet idea about this is that the narrator is the spirit ghost of Mrs. Wilcox. It would explain why we don't get whole pictures into characters, despite the narrator the narrators wanting us to connect. It probably has no actual basis other than my own imagination, though. And I, I read that and Somebody- I was like, that's very clever. Somebody else. So that's how somebody writes a dissertation right there. Go for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Melissa Wagner, we have your dissertation idea. We would like you to write um, 14,000 words for us, um, exploring this idea with as much textual uh, support as possible. <laughs> Evidences. Is, yeah. and, a lot of biographical information. And then we're going to um, invite you on the show to discuss it. Um, Somebody mentions that it's a it's a winning idea. The men do not fare well in this novel. They all connect and then die. That um, was Greg Dunn, and he was yeah. just firing them on all cylinders for that. Leonard and I'm not con- touching that. Y'all Leonard know? connects and dies of heart disease. Henry starts to connect and then dies, it seems, of heart disease. Charles never connects and acts heartlessly. Paul is pure physicality and has an undeveloped heart. Tibby has no chest, can't have a heart without a chest. The guy Evie marries isn't worth discussing. The best man in the book, Margaret's father, is criticized more than once. Um, men without men with hearts who cannot who connect die. Men without hearts are beasts. As Brandon points out, that is not a question, and thus we won't answer it. But it was worth reading on the air. Um, so good job. Well, it is. A, I mean, we can make it into a question if you want. Why? Why is that? Okay. So first of all, I don't think it's an anti-men book because a lot of women don't fare very well either. Right. Right. So it's Evie, an anti-people. And and Julie. <laughs> um, my guess is that. Forrester is saying it's the world, it's society. Why you have either men without chess or men who connect, but they're killed in the process. I mean, Forrester himself would have very much felt as an outsider for his own kind of inner landscape. So as would that whole Bloomsbury group. So that that's my take on it. I don't think he's anti-men. I think he's probably saying this is, this is not a world where you can connect without paying a heavy price. And these are like, these are the most common plights for men in this society. 
you know, this is where you end up. If you, if you continue to kind of like play by the expectations and rules of this game. Hmm. Okay. And last... yes, it does look like Henry's going to die at the end, but I would say he's finally living too. I, I think we're, I think he has a redemptive ending. I think we're supposed to see that. Hmm. Okay. So this is the last question I'm going to ask. I'm going to paraphrase it and kind of simplify it. Somebody asks about the process for close reading. So what I would like you each to do is give one piece of advice or tip or process or skill that you incorporate into your reading process when you're reading something. So what is one thing that you recommend people get good at as they're learning to read more closely? Angelina, I'll let you go first and then I'll give Tim the final word on that. Okay, this might be the number one thing I tell my students, look for things that are repeated because the author is trying to draw your attention. Phrases, motifs, geographical locations, uh, scenes that are repeated and echoed and paralleled and doubled, characters that are doubled, scenes that are doubled. You might even have them in threes um, if it's really well-structured. And so each one will be the same, but a little different. And we're supposed to conclude something to that. So I always look for echoes and repeats. Hmm. Tim, something else? Mm. Okay, this is just a this is a practical thing, less about the words than than what to do after you read the words. Don't do anything for fifteen minutes after you get done reading. And by don't do anything, I mean um, like do something that requires very little mental energy. Fold your laundry, clean your dishes, make up your bed, and your brain is going to be working really yeah, hard. Kid. Yo, you're <laughs> I'm doing that while I'm reading. Am I doing this wrong? <laughs> well, he didn't, like say, he didn't say you couldn't also do it while you're reading. He just said you have to also do it after you're reading. Well, I'm just yeah. going to say, because I know we have a lot of Charlotte Mason um, lovers in, amongst our listeners, that, that Tim is basically just saying the Charlotte Mason thing. She talks about uh, alternating different types of mental processes, I think for exactly that reason. reason. So if, you, if, you're, if your child is reading something, you don't follow that up with a math lesson because it's right, 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 right. break it up with something else, a, a handicraft, something physical in nature walks. So yeah, I think Tim's right. I, there's a sense in which you, you read, but then you also quote unquote don't read. And then that's when it's like, playing yeah. back of your mind and coming all the ideas are coming together. That's I advice. beg my students when class is over, I beg them to not turn on their phone or not be on their computer for at least 15 minutes and just like talk with their other friends that were in class, um, go for a walk, do something that is not occupying your brain. And for me, it, it makes a lightning difference you, how much you retain and how much you can kind of like gather insights from what you just read when you just let the flywheel spin for 15 minutes. Well, I, I agree. My, my thoughts almost, uh, they come to me in the quiet. It's like, I'm not even trying to think about them. I'm just doing something else. And then they pop in. I expect our, our readers are, are like that as well. Cause they talk yeah. about how they fold laundry while they listen to the show. So, you know, they're yeah. probably, probably jiving with that already on a, on a deep level. I wouldn't necessarily recommend advice. that people do this, but one thing that I, on that similar to what you're saying, Tim, is I discovered recently that if I'm reading something either complicated, dense, or uh, or just really rich in some way like that, 
that if I if I actually like read, if after I stop, I kind of pause and then read some kind of poetry, it like mm-hmm. it somehow like helps me process. And I don't know if because poetry is you know the images in poetry and like the nature of the the language and the decisions that poets are often making, and like it just there's it like it's like eating some kind of a dessert that makes the meal like at the end of a meal you eat like a really good piece of fruit or you eat you know mm-hmm. something really sweet or whatever it is that you like that just kind of helps you know makes it feel like it ends properly the meal ends properly it could be like a glass of port or whatever it is that's kind of what it feels like and so sometimes i'll read like a yeah. poem. I mean, I, like I, I not, it doesn't have to be i'm not talking like the odyssey or or like something complicated it could be a poem by mary oliver or some contemporary poet that you like like nine lines long but just the process of reading poetry is like it's like it's the other way I think about it is like when you're doing playing sports or something at the end of it, it's sort of hard to just like stop. Like you can't just play basketball for three hours and then go to sleep. Like it takes some time to sort of come yes. off that, that sort of peak. And I don't, it's sort of, that's, I've found, I don't know, I haven't done that deliberately, but I've found that that's been helped uh, sort of help the ideas that I was reading about sort of germinate into, into actual thoughts that I can express. And I'm sure the, yeah. the poems and the images and the books and stuff that I'm reading are kind of coming together and helping cast them in a new light, which may or may not be a good thing. But that's not really a piece of advice so much as it is just an interesting That's very uh, interesting. I'm, I'm really curious about why it works like that for you. That's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it won't work for me. Maybe it's, maybe, it, maybe, um, maybe the sample size is too small. <laughs> I haven't been, you know, well, like I'm, I'm reminded of the time that I went to a, a fancy store to choose a perfume scent and, Target? you know, they have, the, yes, exactly. Target. <laughs> now the one time in my life, somebody gave me a lot of money for a birthday gift and I was allowed to pick out my fancy designer perfume. So this is the first time I ever went to that kind of like counter ever, you know, you, the stores I shop in usually have them behind lock and clean and in a box. Right. <laughs> but this was, I mean, they had the whole sample, um, the, the whole sample thing out there. And, they, they keep on, on the counter a jar of coffee grounds. And in between sniffing each perfume, you sniff the coffee grounds because what happens is you, you stop smelling them. They all start to smell the same. Uh. And so you have to actually cleanse the nasal passages with the coffee smell, and then you can smell the perfume. And it, just, it seems to me like sort of metaphorically, that's what we're all talking about. You can't just go from book to book to book to book to thought to thought to thought to thought it, just, it all becomes jumbled in your head you, you know you, you stop smelling the perfume you have to you have to cleanse the palate mm. Mm. yeah like tasting like wine tasting too yeah same exact thing okay well we gotta go so i'm just gonna end it right there uh make sure <laughs> make sure everyone votes in the uh the leading ladies of literature bracket um you can find that on our Facebook page, on our Instagram, on our Twitter, uh, on our website, anywhere you can find Cersei stuff, you can find out where that link is. We'll try to post the link in the description of this podcast as well. So contribute to that, contribute to that conversation. Feel free to uh, come at me with your hot takes about what I did wrong or what we did wrong. It was a group effort. Um, but hopefully you'll enjoy that process um, or at least... Y'all show some, it, some love hate, to Matt Bianco for sure. <laughs> Yeah, but then you have to show love for Tim at the same time because it's up against Anna Karenina. So just well, choose. I didn't mean vote Which... for Charlotte over Anna Karenina. God oh, okay. forbid. Just, right. just, yeah. just put some hearts. <laughs> Tag Matt Bianco with hearts and like our condolences for Charlotte's terrible loss. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Send them. You can send cards and flowers to the office. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, um, thanks to everyone who's been contributing to this Howard's Zone conversation. We're going to be kicking off True Grit next week. True Grit does not have easy ways of separating those sections to the book. They're not really chapters, but we're going to call them chapters. So we're going to read the first two sections. It's a fast read. I think we can do this book in four episodes. Um, I am so excited about this so, book. Tim, have you read it before? Never. Okay, neither of us then. I'm, I'm so excited. To I've never read a Western before. I'm so excited. So the first genre. two sections then. In my book, it starts at like page 11 and that goes through like, it's about 50 pages, but it'll go fast. It, it, it's not, it's a little, it's not like reading Howard's End or something like that, where maybe it feels like it's going a little slow from time to time. Um, this is definitely an adventure book. Um, great dialogue. Um, no weird narrator stuff. <laughs> so, um, I, I think it's going to be a really fun and it's going to be a interesting change of pace as well. So the first two sections of that, and the sections are just noted by like, it looks like a chapter, but it doesn't say a number. If that makes sense, it's just a blank space. Oh, it's just like a break. Yeah. Okay. Right. So that you, it's obvious in the books. So we'll read the basically what we're going to consider the first two chapters for next week. So enjoy that. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to let us know. Um, you can find me on social media or via email. Oh, and um, shout out to everybody on the Facebook page who's trying to get their husband to read True Grit. So <laughs> just, that got me so excited. <laughs> we we welcome all husbands to this conversation. Um, <laughs> This is a Western about a girl, but we still invite the husbands to go. Um, I, I guess. I, now I feel like we're suckering them in. I didn't even know that. <laughs> well, it's about a girl and an. Well, I'm just going to leave it at that. It's an, there are it, guns, right? Come on. There are guns. There's chases. There's death, horses, um, flooding. Guns, chases, uh, death. So basically, it's a Flannery O'Connor novel. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Strong female character. Um, okay. Any final thoughts before we end the conversation here on Horizon? I know we can't cover everything when we talk about a book, and we there's gonna be lots of questions that got left unanswered, lots of things that got left unsaid. But I do hope that you enjoyed the last seven or eight weeks of, of conversation on Howard's End. And um, even if you didn't love the book, um, we certainly appreciate you joining in the conversation and hope that it was worth the exercise and the experience for you. Angelina, your final my, thoughts. My, fi my final thought is just that this might be the book that I have seen the most lively interaction with our listeners. Like people were, even if they didn't like it and were just confused by it, there was a lot of conversation about it. So, you know, I guess if great art provokes conversation, then this succeeded. Success. Yeah, it was interesting because the numbers as far as downloads and listeners are down for this series, but the conversation is up. So that's, I find that very intriguing. Huh. That is interesting. Yeah. Timmy. David, nothing from me. Nothing right. from me. All right. Well, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, for Matt Bianco, who made a brief appearance, and for all of us here at the Sosie <laughs> Institute, I am David Kern saying farewell here on Close Reads. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy True Grit. Enjoy voting in the, the literary bracket, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks so much. Okay.